Welcome to the Control-Alt-Azure podcast. I'm Yusip. And I'm Tobias. Join us for a journey in the cloud. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. I am back again. Today, we have a guest as well. But first, what's up, Yusip? Life is relatively good. So... One of the things in life that I seem to be incapable of getting rid of is lower back pains. So normally I don't have any, but once a year it kind of creeps up on me. And uh, now is the time. So so what I've been doing lately, I've been uh, stretching quite a bit and it doesn't seem to help at all. So I, I was almost about to give up on stretching, but then my kids had left YouTube, the app open on the TV. Kids went to bed. I was sitting on the sofa, not really thinking about anything anymore. I flipped through the channels and I found this doctor who focuses on on lower back pain. And he has a channel with five minute episodes on how do you stretch your lower back to get rid of the pain. So that's what I've been doing for the past week. And it's 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 helping might be the red wine also, but I trust it's the, it, it's the stretching. So self-medication on YouTube and red wine. That's the, yes. the secure. Yes. <laughs> okay. And Toby, how are you? So I'm good. Um, you know, the, the thing I've been up to lately is every evening, it's been pretty good weather around here. And since we live by the sea, we've been going down with my two and a half year old and skipping stones. So I am very proud now that she got the technique. And again, she's only two and a half, but she can actually like do this under underhand throw it doesn't really skip. It's only one splash in the water, but but the technique technique is getting there. Um, my own record this year is 22 skips, which is a lot, I think. But then I watched a YouTube video about the world record, and I don't know, it's like 100 or something. It's ridiculous. So then I'm I'm kind of demotivated again. But my daughter is super proud of me, so uh, so I'm happy. So um, 22 skips, uh, the next episode we'll record, I will come back and say I did 23. <laughs> it's on, but yeah. you got to have it on video, though. Ah, okay. That that might be a problem. But Unfortunately, I'll try. I don't have my 22 on video, but if you do 23, you need to have it on video. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And today we also have a guest with us. We have Sami Laiho. Welcome. Why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, everyone. Great to be on. Um, my name is Sami Laiho. I'm from Helsinki, Finland. Normally travel around the world, but been staying home like everyone else for the past three months. And actually, even the late, even the last uh, kind of draw I had on uh, having a conference this year was uh, TechMentor Orlando in uh, November, end of November. But even that was canceled today, which means that. Um, I'm going to stay home for quite a long time. I've been flipping around and going crazy in my house. And um, I've been consulting more than I have for years. And I actually uh, love doing these security audits and uh, whitelisting deployments. And like you said and started already, I've been teaching my six-year-old as well. I've been teaching her how to do white lock, uh, app locker whitelisting. She's getting quite good at it. And I'm hopefully I'll transfer my work quite soon to my six-year-old. So, But skipping stones is uh, something I've been trying as well, but I'm sadly, I I thought that seven was a great number. So. <laughs> 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 uh, 
but my but but my kids are proud of proud of me as well so that's the main thing of course exactly so sami uh you've been working on all things security for for as long as i can remember so so what do you do nowadays is it more security overall is it more focused on certain areas or does it depend on on the customer well um mostly i'm if you think about it on a higher level i'm i'm concentrating on microsoft technologies like i've always like i always have i am doing quite a lot of end user security training because so much of the security problems now arise from things like phishing which although can be like 99% mitigated with the MFA. The 1% is the most uh, demanding one because it can only be fixed by training people. So I've been doing a, quite a lot of uh, end-user training, which is actually really fun because I'm teaching uh, security to different, very different groups than normally. Normally I work with geeks and now I get to work with nurses and doctors and it's very, very different front. So I, I've been doing that quite a lot. I I specialize in Microsoft operating system security and nowadays I've been doing this for so long that I think my my role is mostly auditing environments and then what I've been doing lately quite a lot is basically I'd say babysitting IT departments <laughs> meaning that I um I figure out what's wrong and then I make sure that they fix it correctly and many companies of course have an outsourcing partner so we need to babysit those outsourcing partners to make sure that they actually do what they're required and they do it correctly. So that's quite a lot of what I've been doing. And normally my teaching is about 80% of my company income. It comes from teaching and 20% from consulting. But now it's basically the opposite currently. So I've been doing consulting way more than teaching and traveling. So I have a question on, on this topic, which is less technical one. but so you mentioned this 1% is about training and getting users to understand the problem. How do you see, do you see that this have changed in the recent years or even months now with working from home? Because in the past, it was kind of hard to, to get people to understand how important it is with security. But then I read that 2019 was unprecedented in the amount of data leaks and data breaches and hacks that were exposed on the internet. Has this made people more aware and do you see like a shift when you train people that they're inherently more aware why they need this kind of security training i think the good news is that these actually pop up in the media a lot more which means that everyone hears it on not just like you don't have to be you don't have to be working in it and following it newsletters but they are so big that they actually pop up in our general news broadcasts where people actually hear that companies lose millions and it's uh, normally, of course, the problem has been that security is really difficult to, it's, it's hard to get a budget for projects because you're doing a perfect job when nothing happens, which is really hard to like quantify or justify the expenses because like, honestly, this is not a joke, but I have a friend that I spoke on LinkedIn who was a CISO for a relatively big company and he was fired because nothing happened. There was no use for him. And I mean, he, he, he's done a perfect job and he gets fired because he just wasn't able to show that he actually did anything. I mean, right. he's uh, he needs now. He just said, like, now I understand why we need reporting, even if nothing happens, because he has to show that this is the amount of stuff I blocked from getting in. But um, I think the general um, audience 
end users are becoming more aware. And of course, this huge shift to remote work suddenly also made companies kind of understand that now now we really have to tell them what to do. It, it, it somehow seems that the companies took a little bit more responsibility on this. I did a lot of uh, these security sessions for hundreds of people or thousands of people in companies. I did those a lot in uh, maybe 2006, 2007 time, but then it's been relatively quiet. And now I think it's mostly because of all the phishing attacks. It, it's just the one that is so simple for everyone to understand that we can't really do anything about the fact that if someone writes their username and password somewhere, we can't kind of like we can't block it with F-Secure, like everyone in Finland would have tried to do it, but it just doesn't work anymore. Like we actually have to tell the people that they're not supposed to do that. So with all the phishing, and I, I mean the simulated phishing attacks is a great example. Simulated phishing attacks are like the best thing to do for that 1% of phishing protection that you need to do, but it's really, really important. And I see there's like, uh, I think it's 498 out of Fortune 500 companies are now customers of Know Before, which is a company which is only specializes in simulated phishing attacks. So companies are taking it more seriously that they have to educate the end users. And also the end users see that if, only one single person can cause millions and millions of losses for a company. And also in Finland, we have a few cities that are working as perfect examples because when a city gets hacked, that gets on the news. If a Finnish company gets hacked, that might get on the news that we read. But if a city gets hacked and the infrastructure starts to suffer so that people can't get their information for the doc from, from the doctor's system or whatever, I mean, that, that's, that's general news stuff. I think I saw, it was actually today, I saw on LinkedIn that one of the cities uh, that got hacked yes, uh, last year in Finland, that the, the cost for, for fixing all that happened after that was about 1 million euro. And somebody had, had estimated that if they had invested properly in, a, in having a CISO and actually invested proactively, the total cost would have been about 400,000. So mm. now they ended up paying about 600,000 more because they, they had to hurry up and, and put out the fires and then figure out how to move forward from here. That's, um, I've, I've, um, I have a customer in Finland that, that lost about, well, actually it's a global company, but my, I have friends working there. They, um, it was all over the news. They lost 97 million. 97 million euros in one month. And uh, that is basically one person messing up. I mean, that, that was one person on one laptop opening one ransomware. But that's also the thing that ransomware has evolved so heavily because ransomware used to take your data as hostage, just you. Then they evolved in to what is happening right now mostly, which is that they take the whole infrastructure of a company as hostage. They encrypt the Active Directory database, for example, and paralyze the whole company. That's what happened to this example. And uh, then they moved from that to taking kind of the public infrastructure as hostage, meaning for especially now with uh, all the efforts in the hospitals going to actually what they were supposed to do all the time, and they don't have time for the IT stuff. 
then that means that uh, they've been victims of more furious attacks than ever before. And now the one lately, which is the most difficult one in a way, is that somehow we've been trying to technically battle against these letting in the letting in the malware that would be a ransomware. But now the problem is that they're taking your reputation as hostage more, which is like those emails that you get where they say that you they've seen you do bad things in front of your webcam, in front of teenage girls and whatever. And then they just show you that we we, we hacked your computer and this is your password. And it's your super secret password. So they have to have hacked you because they know your password, although the password is from the old LinkedIn breach. But people just use the same password on all the systems. So it's that's the most easy for them because they don't have to technically get into your system. They just have to take your reputation as hostage. And I've had these very high, uh, very high ranking officers of different Finnish companies that I happen to know. And they, they, they or their friends have called me in the middle of the night and asked for help because they've been totally hacked. And the end result is that no one has ever even been on their computer. They just get an email that says that if you don't pay, we'll tell. Social engineering on a bad yeah, conscience. Exactly. Last week, last week, we had the first double ransomware. So they like first they said, we won't give you your data back unless you pay us. Then they started saying, we'll release the data unless you pay us. But now they're doing both. So they first ransom you for the data, and then they still keep the copy. And after you paid for getting your data back, then they'll ask you for more ransoms so that they won't release it publicly. So now somebody listening in on this and thinking about ransomware and malware, uh, what would kind of be the suggestions and the recommendations that people should do beyond just enabling MFA, of course, but perhaps on Azure or Office 365 or on-premises, what would be those crucial steps that people should definitely do after listening in on this episode? Well, you can think about it. What I always try to tell people, there's this great example. I was just working with the Nordic company and they hired me and said that they want to do whitelisting solutions. So what, what blacklisting is the old one where you deny access to certain things, which doesn't work as a security barrier because whitelisting helps and works as a security barrier because there's one million pieces of malware found per day. So if you would try to blacklist things, then that would mean that you would have to have a list that would increase with one million lines per day compared to whitelisting where you add maybe one trusted app per month. So it's a very, very more efficient option and you have to, I was I got into the meeting and the first thing they said was we absolutely want to do it but everyone runs their apps from the server so we want to we just want to whitelist the servers and I was like no like this is what you got totally wrong no one is executing anything from the servers that that's the idea that many people have is that you're running something from a share or SharePoint or whatever, you find a thing there and you want to run it. But it, that's executing in your local computer's memory always. It's never running on the server, which means there's no reason for whitelisting the server unless it's an RDS server or a Citrix server when it makes sense. But you should always think about where the binary actually executes. So the binary executes on your laptop. If it's an executable, your Windows executes it. If it's an email, your Outlook reads it. Your Outlook has a plugin that reads it. If it's a PDF, it's your Acrobat reader. And of course, most attacks are in the browser. Now, if we think about browser, last year there were 858 different uh, vulnerabilities against Windows. 
that's more than uh, 64%, 64% more than ever before, um, or actually uh, not ever before, but for the average of the last five years. And uh, 100% of attacks against Edge, not meaning the old Edge, but I mean the real new Edge with the Chromium engine, 100% of all vulnerabilities against IE and Edge would have been mitigated by removing admin rights. Not 99%, but 100%. Not a single thing that you have against a threat that comes in through the browser. If we're talking about the Chromium engine, which is used by Chrome as well, and the new edge, and IE. 100% of those would have been blocked. So I know this is a mantra that I've been... I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to establish like a anonymous non-admins club, and you're going to get stickers or badges for years, but I've been 18 years without admin rights, okay? I started in 2002, and uh, that's the main thing. If you want to, that works for your home computer, create another user account that you log on with and play games and only use that admin account to install software or whatever you need. If we're talking about your endpoint in your company, even more importantly, I have a customer in Switzerland that took away admin rights in 2008, uh, we, we did the project 2018, they have 17,000 computers. And in 2019, they had a 75% decrease in help desk tickets. I mean, that's not just important for security, but it just keeps everything working so much better that, that that's the number one thing to do. So it works for companies as well. If something gets on your computer, then you, th you can think about what the effect actually will be. You launch an, you launch an executable. First, your whitelisting will hopefully block it. So if you have a possibility of using it, then that's great. Um, if not, then when it launches without admin right, the only thing it can do is basically encrypt your own data, not anyone else's on the computer or not the neighbor's computer. If you log on using an admin right, uh, someone with admin rights, then it will encrypt your data, everyone else's data on the machine, and it can go also usually to the next machine. If you log on with a domain admin, then they encrypt the Active Directory database. The same thing applies for Azure. If you log on with a limited user in your tenant, a normal user, they will probably encrypt your data, yes. But if you're using a global admin account, then they'll just encrypt the whole tenant. So it's, all, it's always about what gets into your machine, the entry points for malware, and then we have to think about the fact that if if nothing blocks it from running, what can it do? So first of all, if you're on-prem, deny domain admins from logging onto workstations. That is the biggest no-no of any environment in the world. And I'm telling this like th here like this with this voice because I seriously have to do this every freaking week that I have to go to a customer where they log on as domain admins to their workstations because everything just works smooth and it's nice to work this way. <laughs> no error messages, right? <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Everything just works. And I don't have to switch from an account to another. Then I go in and I'm going to tell them that if you manage your computer, if you read email, this is your user. If you manage your own computer, this is your user number two. If you do workstation administration stuff, then it's user number three. If you do server administration, it's user number four. And domain admin stuff, user number five, which means you have five user accounts, five accounts to take care of, five passwords to reset, five passwords to remember, five different tokens for MFA and stuff like that. So, of course, I'm like the most hated person when I get into any environment because I make people's life so hard. At least that's what they think. Block anyone from using excessive rights, whether it's your local computer or it's your Azure. Stop using global admin. 
you get a security score of nothing if you have more than three global admins in your Azure tenant, if you go for and look at the security score. So that, that's a very good point. Like you should not need those for like almost any time. In a traditional Active Directory, we needed it for removing or adding domains. We needed an enterprise admin account to authorize the DHCP server and to build uh, site-specific group policy objects. So like that, you never need those, like almost never. So just stop using those. The higher privileges you use, you either lose your computer or you lose the whole company. Choose. Okay, so the takeaway I'm getting here is is to get to know AppLocker, uh, especially on, on an enterprise environment. And that's probably something that's, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's relatively straightforward in the sense that you plan for that, you design for that, you implement, you test, and you get it in production. But getting rid of admin rights, and, and while I'm talking this, I'm opening your local user manager and removing my own admin rights. <laughs> <laughs> because everything just works, especially if I open Visual Studio, I can always run as admin and it never complains about anything. So this is probably the painful bit in here. So what about then, uh, let's assume we have uh, fixed the local admin and the global admin and domain admin privileges so that we're not using those. Mm -hmm. Should we then perhaps use privilege identity management in the cloud to then yes. give those dynamic permissions. Yeah, so so uh, privileged identity management gives you the ability to get just enough access and cheat um, just in time, just enough admin, so or just enough access. Most horrible acronym I have ever heard in my life. But um, yep, the only of of course, if you want to get it working perfectly, then you need a P2 license for Azure AD. So uh, that's a little bit. Like it might be out of some people's reach. The good thing is you can do this with uh, you can do this with third-party apps as well. Like I use Beyond Trust for most of my environments, and um, it's not cheap either. But it's always about when I tell people that, for example, a privileged identity management solution that Azure gives is perfect for managing your global admin. You don't need anything else. That is absolutely perfect for that. You don't have to invest in anything else. That That is absolutely. If we think about the problem you mentioned first, which is the one where Visual Studio needs to be run. I have a company in Espoo here in Finland that has 127 devs, a software development company that doesn't really do anything else but software development. And I can tell you that when I took, a, when I took admin rights away from that company, that was like super difficult. I was able to do it. The funny part is that I've never told them that they don't have admin rights. You can't tell devs that they don't have admin rights because they'll go on barricades and start changing companies. But I mean, if you can do that, I've always said there's two people that are difficult for this project. The other one is devs and the other one is kids. Like if kids game doesn't work, daddy is in trouble and daddy will do anything to keep the harmony in home and devs. Visual Studio is a great example. Visual Studio is, I, 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 what you can do is you can do privileged identity management on local boxes as well. But that's basically something that Microsoft has said for the past 10 years, more than 10 years, they've said when I asked them, like every third party that does this, they do it with built-in APIs of Windows. Why can't Microsoft build in a system where we could change from the old way of always giving admin rights to a single user or a single computer to the way where we would give the rights to tasks or processes. Give Visual Studio admin rights. 
give the person the ability to change the local IP address. That's a really problematic thing. We have an oil company here in Finland. That was the biggest thing they had against this. Their engineers need to take a laptop, take it to the oil refinery, plug it into the machines there. Doesn't have a DHCP, so they have to put in a static IP address, and you can't do that without admin rights. I mean, that like you can't stop people from working and being productive by saying security is more important. I've never been able to. Uh, I mean, you can't get management buy-in unless you can keep productivity up. So it does cost a little bit. And I've asked Microsoft for the 10 years, why can't you do this? Because Windows can do it. And Microsoft has always said, currently, we leave this to our partners. And currently, they do leave it to their partners. So Beyond Trust, Policy Pack, uh, CyberArk, they, the different companies that have these solutions that can do that. So what we do in those companies is Visual Studio launches as an admin user. But now the problem here is in Windows, you could do run as. So you could say, Jussi is logging onto the machine, but then you, then you control shift, double click your Visual Studio, and then you put in Jussi admin. But the problem, yeah. is dual, the problem is dual identity. It's very painful to work because then you go to Visual Studio and you save a project to your documents, but it's not your documents. It's your admin friend's documents. So it's your alter ego's documents. What these paid services do is they adjust the access token of the actual process, which means that when you launch Visual Studio, you will have the group membership of administrators in Visual Studio's token. And now Visual Studio runs with full privileges. And then you don't have the dual identity problem. I have people who tell me, I mean, I, I don't remember who said it, but the smartest thing that anyone has ever said about security is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. And that's what I get from the security people is always, no, no, now you allow Visual Studio to run as admin, but that means you can build any code from Visual Studio, so that will run as admin as well. So it's leaking. I was like, come on, like we blocked every possible entry point of malware that comes in. If you double click, if you, if I give you admin rights as a dev and you double click IE or you double click Outlook or you double click Adobe Reader, they will be running as admin. But if we use privileged identity management, then you double click on your IE, Firefox, Chrome, Outlook, Adobe, whatever, they're still limited users. And only when you launch Visual Studio. Now, if the fact that I've given you admin rights and you launch something, you're an internal threat. That's a different thing. I mean, that, I mean, if you're bad, if, if you want to do things against the rules, I can really defend against that perfectly. That's like HR department that needs to step in. And, and we have that. And I'm not like, I don't want to, um, I, I, I don't mean that it doesn't matter because there's a horrible statistic that currently, 28% of all attacks against companies are by internal threats. So almost one out of three threats are from your own people. And that's a Nordic number, and we are quite, we are quite nice here. I mean, that's a lot worse number if you go to different parts of the world. So honestly, it is a big thing. But the privileged identity management, Azure does perfect for global admin and all the roles that you have there. That is perfect. Just use, use that. Sadly, you need a little bit higher license for that. It's not for everyone, but uh, that's perfect. But then you, when you go back to the endpoint that actually launches the malware against you, that doesn't still have privilege management from Microsoft. That still needs a third-party solution. Alrighty. So next time I'm thinking of running Visual Studio as run as admin, I, I now know I need to do different. Uh, so 
What about BitLocker then? Uh, back in the day, it was a big thing. And nowadays, I kind of feel that everybody accepts the fact that you need to enable BitLocker, both for VMs in the cloud, for on-prem VMs and workstations. Are you seeing it widely adopted now that it's it's a given that everybody uses it? I think it is. I mean, I if we go back five years, that would be the first thing I would have to fight against was that people still thought that BitLocker was data encryption only and the only reason to have it was that if you had a laptop so you could physically someone would steal your laptop nowadays bitlocker is on everywhere bitlocker you have to remember that there's three things to bitlocker the most important feature of bitlocker is integrity not data encryption that's number two i mean people forget that if you don't have bitlocker anyone can change your computer which means it's like epochs it's like glue you put in a perfect if app locker is a great example if i put in a great whitelisting solution like app locker uh, and i don't have bitlocker then anyone can open up the hard drive and just remove c windows system 32 app locker folder and app locker dies and turns off but bitlocker is the glue it's like if you buy a usb key that's tamper protected it's dipped into epochs so that if someone tries to tamper with the chip itself, it will break. BitLocker does that to your Windows machine. It just keeps it tamper protected so that no one can tamper with it. The second thing it gives you is the data encryption, which is, of course, great when someone tries to steal your data. Um, the VM side, nowadays, all the 2016, 2019 gave us the possibility of encrypting all the VMs so that the, because we have a, uh, we have, a, we have a big problem in security because we have these rings that the operating systems support, like Windows calls them kernel mode and user mode, CPUs call them rings. And the problem is that in Windows' world, ring zero is the supervisor mode, the kernel mode, the one that can do whatever. And now if you have an Active Directory domain controller running in a VM and you're the enterprise admin, what sadly happens in most companies is that that person is so important now that they don't want to do daily tasks like taking care of the fabric, which means the enterprise admin is running in the VM, which is housed on a Hyper-V host that is run by a junior admin. But they forget that the junior admin now owns ring minus one, which is the hypervisor, which means they can read any secrets, they can read any memory. They, they own everything that runs on that Hyper-V platform. And now people are kind of starting to understand this, that if you're running your... PC now in someone else's room, which would have been the old physical world, they own it. And now they start understanding that if it's on a hypervisor, like it's running on Azure, or it's running on a, someone else's data center, that you actually have to encrypt them because that person might do bad things for your VM. So server side is now sinking in. People are understanding that even those need to be encrypted. Client side, I think the best thing has been that every, like, when people buy mobile phones, it says that it's encrypted. And people are starting to think like, okay, so even if I buy a personal mobile phone, it's encrypted. So maybe my company's devices should be encrypted as well. And it's becoming day to day. Plus, it gives you the benefit of uh, very fast uh, decommissioning, which people forget all the time. Because with BitLocker, you can wipe the disk securely in two seconds. If you don't have BitLocker, you have to use these Linux disk wipe solutions that take seven hours to wipe a disk securely. So there are a lot of benefits to BitLocker that people don't really understand. So two so, main rules for Windows is uh, there's no security in Windows unless you have full disk encryption, 
and principle of least privilege. Because if you have admin, you can remove BitLocker. If you don't have BitLocker, you'll get admin. So those are the two main rules. Okay, so I'm I'm tagging on the point that you can spend seven hours wiping your disk using a Linux-based thing. So if I bill by the hour, I feel that will be good business for me in the future. Yes, absolutely. You should definitely not deploy BitLocker. That's really bad for your business. <laughs> <laughs> Alrighty, so this was really useful on all things security. Um, so to kind of sum it up, uh, we, we chatted about the ransomware thing and AppLocker, AppLocker and MFA came up there immediately. And you mentioned also a couple of third-party solutions. So I will put those on the show notes as well. So anybody listening on this will get the links to those. And then on admin rights, that's probably the kind of the easiest in the sense that anybody can do that, remove their admin rights, but it's also the hardest because you're letting go of control that you already have, or you've had that for 20 years. Uh, Toby, am I missing out on anything, anything that comes to mind? No, I, I think that pretty much sums it up. Uh, there's one thing that I, I came to think about when we talked about training your users. And and like you, some of you said, uh, it, it's hard to move away from this this way where you deny things by default instead of uh, allowing things by default. And I guess this is what Microsoft is pushing hard with their zero trust framework, mm -hmm. or yeah, I don't know if they call it the framework or what they do, but the, the zero trust model where you kind of can, I think they have a tool now even where you can make an assessment for you and your organization to answer a bunch of questions about identities, how you handle devices, applications, if you have MFA, who have them, uh, your infrastructure data network and all these kind of things. Um, I try that out myself, but of course, I'm in a small organization, but it would be very interesting to see how that would apply to to an enterprise and see the results. Is this something you have heard people use or take into account in, in these discussions? Yes, it is something it is, it is something that people are aiming for. I mean, even um, even Microsoft, I mean, if if you're the there's the NT 3.1 user guide from 1993 that says that in Windows there's no security if you have admin rights. Yet Microsoft is telling us that we should get rid of admin rights if we want to be secure. But if you think about Microsoft themselves, you'll knows this. So they they do let all users run as admin on their local box if they want to. And uh, and when I spoke. To a few people at Microsoft, even they said that uh, you know that's more about the fact that we really have we really think about it like we already lost the trust in the network. We have to tre treat it like we have 140,000 people working in a totally untrusted network. And what the zero trust really means is many companies are actually thinking of this in the way that they that you have to treat every internal network like it was internet. Like we used to everything be, is a threat. Right? Yes. Yeah. Basically, everything is a threat. And I mean, honestly, if you can do whitelisting, and now because we're mentioning AppLocker so many times, there is the one thing you have to remember is that AppLocker is available for Windows 10 Enterprise or Windows 10 Pro if you're using Intune to manage that endpoint. So if you use Intune, you can stay with Windows 10 Pro and get AppLocker. But if you are using Group Policy to manage AppLocker, then you need Windows 10 Enterprise. Uh, but that's not an excuse to stay away from whitelisting, because if you have Windows 10 Pro, you can use software restriction policies. 
AppLocker is internal, even in the Windows registry. If you go and see where your where your settings are saved, they're saved in a key that is called SRPv2. So software restriction policy version two. But it had such such a bad reputation that Microsoft rebranded it to AppLocker so that people would kind of give it another chance because people hated whitelisting back in 2005 when it was the first time when everyone had it. Even AppSecure in Finland had their own app locker and everyone wanted a whitelisting solution. But the problem was everyone wanted to whitelist every executable with the hash value. And then you had Batch Tuesday and everything broke. But that's the, what we do so different today. So I started with the city of Helsinki where I deployed a whitelisting solution. I, I started with 8,000 lines. And uh, when I was done, we were down to 72 with the same end result. So you can do whitelisting in totally different. But the, the key here is if you don't have admin rights, if you think about it, this is like dead simple. Just think about this. I'll inject, I'll inject three rules in your operating system for a whitelist. I'll say you can only run things from program files and windows and admins can run whatever they want. And then I'll take away your admin rights. Now, if devs would develop desktop applications based on the documentation that Microsoft has, I can give you a link for that as well. You can spread it out and we can make the world better. And if, if, if devs would read that, honestly, we, don't, we wouldn't need any other rules because you can only run things from broker files and windows and you can't put anything in them without being an admin. Everything would be perfect in an enterprise environment. So it's kind of like, it's not difficult, but people think, I, I just went into a meeting literally last week I've done this many, many times, but I went into a, went, went into a meeting. I mean, into a Teams meeting. But anyway, uh, the first question was, Sami, now that we, we have you here as a consultant, can you first verify one thing? It's like, okay, what? We're going to hire two new people to take care of AppLocker. Is that enough? And I was like, uh, I've never, ever had to hire people to take care of AppLocker. I mean, you might have to fire people after we do it because you save so much work on the reactive side that you can fire people who are looking at the monitors of blinking malware alerts everywhere. But I mean, it, it's the, the big problem is people think it's difficult. It's the same with admin rights. People think if I don't have admin rights, I, don't, I can't fix my computer, so I have to call help desk. But in reality, if you don't have admin rights, you can't break your computer. It's a totally, like people just have it totally opposite. It's an old thing that is really hard. Like you, you said, it's, it's more of a app locker is, log things, see what you have, allow good things, up, keep it up to date. It, it's a technical solution. But telling people, I don't know how you, I don't know, even know how, I don't know the English uh, saying for this, but I mean, if, if you have taking away someone's benefits that they want, they once got to themselves, it's, it's like, it's really difficult to go to someone and say, I'm going to take down your powers. It's just bad, hard for a human being. When, when I went to work for a training company for the first time, I remember I went to work for Tiaturi and I, uh, I was amazed about the fact because I had been working in smaller companies where I would have to do everything. And then I went there and I've always had full admin rights and I sat on my desk. I just written a contract with them which said that I need to teach classes and build class materials or training materials. And I, I sat there and this one angry woman came to me and started yelling. And Sami, we have a new person. Aren't you working for the infrastructure department? Yes, I am. Well, we have a new person who's starting tomorrow. Can you fix her laptop? Can you make her a new exchange account and a user account and give her the password and make sure it has office and whatever? And in the middle, I was just like, I had this light bulb on my head and I was like, you know what? I can't. 
for the first time I was like, I'm actually going to do what my contract tells me to do. Like, this is awesome. Like, I will never, ever get admin rights anymore. Like, because I used to be in the previous company, people would come to me like, Sammy, I know you have admin rights. Can you make solitaire work on my machine? Oh, yes, I can, of course. Yes, I can, of course. I will help you out. And I was so proud of my powers. So I'm going to stay away from those. And I have been away from them like now 18 years and counting. So a couple of years ago, somebody called me and said, Yussi, we need your help. We need you to implement this sort of solution that whenever somebody logs into their Windows 10, we will automatically change the wallpaper to something that it's it's the same for everybody. And I said, and what's the reason for this? Well, we want to have our logo prominently displayed for everybody. So once you have admin rights and powers, you get to do interesting stuff, definitely. <laughs> All righty. So, so normally at this point of the show, we do word of the day, but I think we ran out of Finnish and Swedish words. So perhaps we could ask Sami, would you have a joke to share with us? Yes, I do. I can tell you a joke that has a really funny story to the joke itself. So... When I got into my first TechEd as a speaker for uh, TechEd uh, US in New Orleans, uh, 2013, I built a deck for the show. It was called Black Belt Troubleshooting Windows 8.1, and uh, people always ask me like, "How do you make a, how do you make an interesting technical topic, or how do you make a to- technical topic interesting and keep people alive and whatever?" and uh, Nowadays, when I teach speakers, I always show them the old deck because the old deck, first of all, it had like 45 slides, which is way too much, but it had like 45 slides and it mentioned Windows 8.1 for the first time on slide 42. So I I won the conference as the best session, having a session that didn't basically talk even about the title. So it, it rarely, when you create a big show, it's rarely that much about just technology. It's more of a show, especially in, in uh, bigger conferences. But I had a, my, my trademark nowadays, now that you mentioned the Finnish words, my trademark is uh, this Finnish word for administrator, which is järjestelmä valvoja. And it's printed on all my t-shirts and people buy hoodies Jesus with the word. And, so they, they buy hoodies with that thing on it and anyway so it became my trademark but why did it become become my trademark is a really funny thing because i when i build a deck i choose jokes first so i i I have five jokes or whatever i need to put into the session and then i take a technical topic and i start building the technical topic around those jokes and i when i went in i was really nervous and i had to build my first ever deck and i only had one joke and that joke was about lord of the rings and um, I had to get some sort of a segue into it. Now, Lord of the Rings, the language of the elves is based on Finnish. So J.R.R. Tolkien used the Finnish language as the base to build. The, there's like six or seven different languages for the elves. But anyway, so he was a linguist and he, he found our national uh, book, um, Kalevala. And he found it and he found that Finnish was like the smallest language group in the world. And he decided it's so spectacular because no one's going to understand it. So he's going to use it as the language of the elves. And uh, even today, I find people at the corridors of Orlando Convention Center and they pass by me and I hear them whispering like, he speaks Elvish. (laughs) (laughs) So I needed a segue to get from 
get to the Lord of the Rings because I had that joke that I had to put in. I wanted that in and I needed a segue. So the segue became Lord of the Ring, Rings, language of the elves is based on Finnish. Finland has a very stupid word for administrator. Here you go. And that it took like five, six, seven slides to build up for the joke. But the joke actually was, do you know what's a Gollum hangover? No idea. Gollum hangover is when you wake up gray and naked behind a rock and you lost the ring. <laughs> <laughs> I, I better not tell this at home. They might get the wrong idea. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one. Uh, thank you, Sami, for for joining us for this episode. Uh, I imagine it would be okay for people also to reach out to you should they have any needs or wants on all things security. Absolutely. You can reach me online, Twitter, Sami Laiho, S-A-M-I-L-A-I-H-O. That's the most active channel. And I'm blogging about AppLocker. I just started the Block 5 five episode blog series i just actually uh got the first one out last night it's on forcesops.com so that's number forcesops.com and my website is win-foo.com and samilaiho.com as well if you need me for speaking engagements or anything i do a lot of security audits and i have time more than i ever have because of the current situations i'm more than happy to help out anyone so please reach out. We'll we'll add the links on the show notes as well. Uh, thank you for listening and until next time. See you then. Thank you for tuning in to the Control Alt Azure podcast. Find out more and read the show notes on controlaltazure.com. Stay tuned. Thank you.